Lord our God, open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word and give us grace to receive it, to understand it and to obey it for the glory of our Saviour Jesus Christ. Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Do please uh, take a seat. Uh, If you have that uh, passage that Tricia read for us so well, uh, open in front of you, that would be very helpful to me. It is uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, and it's on page 350 in the uh, Pew Bibles, if you're uh, following it. Um, I wonder if you've been following the uh, World Cup at all. Some people might have been, I suspect. Yeah, there's a few nods there. Yep. Um, It hasn't taken very long, has it, for uh, England's uh, quest for uh, international football and glory to come a cropper. Uh, I wonder if you were one of those who were secretly hoping that the ghosts of 1966 were going to be vanquished this time. Maybe some there who were just thinking this might just be the year where they pull it off. Or perhaps more likely you were one of the cynics who thought it's just a a matter of time before it all gets stuffed up. It's probably going to be a penalty shootout uh, involving uh, our uh, Germanic uh, cousins. Or maybe not. It was just a question of when they were going to stuff it up. And I think in some sense, uh, chapter 11 of 1 Kings is a little bit like that sort of scenario. Uh, It's a sad come down after all the high hopes and the hype that's gone before. Uh, If you've been uh, with us over the last few weeks, uh, you'll have uh, seen how Solomon and the people of God have seemingly been going from one blessing to another. Uh, Solomon's been uh, appointed the king of Israel, Uh, they've built the temple, Uh, finally this promised house for God has been uh, completed. Uh, They've been enjoying great periods of blessing and prosperity. What could possibly go wrong? Well, sadly, as our chapter um, uh, tells us, uh, rather a lot can go wrong. Uh, There are three sections, I think, to the passage. I've got a PowerPoint for you this morning, after a few of you asked after last week, if there would be some. It's quite a long chapter, so three headings for us to uh, guide us uh, through. Uh, The first one is the section from uh, verses 1 to 8, which I've entitled, The Heart uh, That God Desires. Uh, It's been a truism, I think, isn't it? Could we have the next slide, please, Robin? Brilliant, thank you. There we go, a nice picture for you as well. Uh, It's been true, hasn't it, I think, throughout history, that uh, many famous and powerful men have come a cropper at the hands of beautiful women. Uh, Lots of people, whether it's Mark Antony... Back, uh, back in Rome with Cleopatra. Uh, John Profumo, some of you can remember John Profumo a few years ago. Now, isn't it? About 50 years, maybe more than that. Uh, Bill Clinton, maybe slightly more, uh, more uh, recently. Lots of powerful men have come a cropper at the hands of uh, beautiful women. Sadly, Solomon proves uh, no exception to that uh, rule. Uh, there is an echo here at the very start of uh, chapter 11 of those words that we heard back in chapter 3. Uh, just those hints uh, that uh, Solomon loved many foreign women, verse 1, uh, besides Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, in other words, he, he loved women who were not part of God's people. It's not really a comment on their ethnicity so much as to say that they weren't part of God's people. Uh, they were people who uh, were not following the ways of God. Uh, we, uh, we had a bit of a laugh, didn't we, when uh, we saw about Solomon's 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Busy boy, we could say. Uh, it wasn't particularly unusual 
in those uh, days. It was very common for kings to marry across um, nationalities. It was basically an easy way of securing political alliances. I mean, it's, it's carried on throughout history, hasn't it? You could see that. If you study the, uh, the uh, lineages of the royal families of Europe, uh, you can see that they're all very interconnected. It's a, it's a common uh, thing that happens throughout history. And yet the writer is clear that whatever the political benefits of such behaviour... Uh, It's a clear violation of God's law. Verse 2, the writer says, uh, they were from nations about which the the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Uh, Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and uh, Exodus chapter 34, God had told the Israelites very, very clearly that they must only marry fellow Israelites. Uh, And yet Solomon the king has deliberately ignored God's commands and has done indeed just that. Why has God uh, set out such a law? Is he just being a killjoy? No, the answer is there, isn't it? In verse 2, he says, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Uh, To marry somebody outside of the people of God uh, will inevitably lead the heart away from God and towards false gods, counterfeit gods, or or rivals, idols, we might say. We've got a picture of an idol up there. It is, in fact, the first step on the road to idolatry. Uh, And so it proves with Solomon. Solomon is exactly uh, the, the example here. His love for, uh, for foreign women, for foreign wives, turns his heart away from God. It caused him to lose his love for God, verse uh, 4. Uh, Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Uh, the king, who ploughed so much effort into building a temple for God is now found building places of worship for false gods, verse 7. How on earth has this situation occurred? How has it happened? How has Solomon fallen from such heights? Uh, Well, the writer tells us that it is all to do with Solomon's heart. Uh, Did you notice that five times in the first few verses of this chapter, he speaks of the heart Solomon's heart. Uh, the heart for uh, writers in the Bible is a very, very important concept. Uh, they use it slightly differently to how we would speak of. We, we often speak of the heart as being sort of emotional, don't we? So if you said that um, oh, somebody wears their heart on their sleeve, you'd mean that their emotions are always very, very clear. You can see exactly uh, what they think about something at any given time. Uh, it means that partly for the Bible writers. But it means more, it is the centre of somebody's will. Uh, it's the, the place, I guess, where decisions are made. Uh, you, you might almost say the ancients believed that you think with your heart. We would say that you, know, you think with your mind and you sort of feel with your heart. They, they would say, no, you, you think with your heart, if that uh, makes sense. And the Bible tells us that it's in the heart that sin is nurtured. We had a bit of an illustration of that, didn't we, with Alex, Alex's uh, um, slot earlier. It's in the heart that sinful desires are nurtured and from which they flow. Jesus himself said, didn't he, in uh, Mark chapter 7, 
It's what comes out of a man that defiles sin. It's what comes out of the heart. Sin proceeds from the inside. And so it's true with Solomon in our passage. The rebellious inclinations of his heart, common to every single human being, leads him away from God. What should we learn from this rather sorry tale? I think there are quite a few things we could learn. Let's focus on a couple of them. Uh, Firstly, simply, I think uh, we should not be blind to the effect of uh, our life partner on um, our uh, walk with the Lord, should we? Very simply, we should take great care over our choice of a life partner. Uh, When I was at um, Theological College, um, a tutor rather dramatically uh, made a comment in one of, in one of the lecturers um, that uh, the person we married would either be the making or the marring of us. A bit dramatic, but it's absolutely true. Would either be the making or the marring of us. Uh, how right I think he was. How many of us, I guess, can think of Christians who were once going strong for the Lord, who were very, very, very keen for God? They maybe married somebody who wasn't quite so keen. Maybe they weren't a Christian, maybe they were a Christian, but just were not as keen for the Lord Jesus. And now they've grown cold over the years. Their faith has just drifted away. They've drifted into apathy. Uh, You see them sometimes at church, perhaps, uh, but not all the time. They've lost their first love. Uh, Rightly, Paul warns us, doesn't he, in 2 Corinthians, of being unequally yoked. Uh, Those are not light words. Uh, To marry somebody whose central passion is not the Lord Jesus will always and in despair. Uh, If we are married, as many of us uh, may well be uh, this morning, I think there's a lesson here, isn't there, uh, for us, in are we encouraging our spouse to love Christ as we should do? Uh, There is an immense blessing from being the person who encourages our spouse to hunger after God, hunger after more of him. Uh, Solomon's wives uh, didn't do that because they didn't share that passion. They didn't love the Lord Jesus. Uh, How important it is that we're encouraging our spouse, those closest to us, our friends, our family, uh, to live for Jesus and to to serve him. That's the first thing. Uh, Secondly, I think we should be aware of the subtlety of sin. Uh, There is, I think we see in this passage, this subtle drift in Solomon's life uh, from a heart that is passionate for God to a heart that is in idolatry. There's no sudden fall. We're not told of anything dramatic that that happened. It's just this subtle slide as the years went past. Uh, Even worse, it happened as he grew old, it said, verse 4. The time when he should have been setting an example, he should have known what he should be doing, actually was the time when he fell. Uh, Even age is no defence against the heart and its wicked ways. Uh, Jeremiah said to me that the heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, for that reason, the proverb, writer of Proverbs, which is probably Solomon, ironically, says that we should guard our hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. Uh, that is the secret, I think, to avoiding Solomon's mistakes. Guarding our hearts, only by keeping a careful watch on our hearts. Uh, on what we are thinking about, what consumes us, what controls us. Uh, Only by crying out to God to change our hearts, to renew us, that we might love him and serve him 
as we know we should. That is the answer to sliding into apathy as Solomon does. The heart that God desires, the heart that Solomon once had, is the heart that is devoted to God above everything else and uh, that says no to, uh, to the lies of false gods. That's the first uh, point for us, the heart that God desires. Uh, shall we move on to the second uh, section, uh, which I've entitled The History That God uh, Directs, uh, from uh, verse 9. Uh, I don't know much about history. It means nothing to me. History is bunk. Anyone know who said those words? Peter? Henry Ford, it was. Yeah, it was Henry Ford, the uh, founder of uh, Ford Motor Cars, um, a number of years ago in an uh, in interview with a newspaper. I wonder how many of us might be tempted to agree with him. Perhaps you loathed history when you were at school. It was a subject you couldn't stand, and you're frankly not, you don't really know why we're in Kings and what uh, difference that makes to our lives. How on earth can events so long ago be of relevance to us today? And yet the truth is that the history of the Bible is of supreme relevance and importance to every single one of us. It's not just a series of random events that have happened by chance, but it is the acts of God. It's under the careful direction of Almighty God. Uh, It's clear that Solomon's sin has consequences. Verse uh, 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who'd appeared to him twice. Uh, And although he'd forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. The Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Uh, God had promised, again, back in Deuteronomy, that if his people were unfaithful, he would be forced to act. He would have to. He had to be true to his character, to his promise. He can't tolerate rivals. Our God is a jealous God, says the uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, So it's no surprise, therefore, to see these words uh, written here. Uh, Solomon has forfeited the kingdom. God is nothing if uh, he's not consistent to his word. Uh, There's an old story of an American congressman who was campaigning for American voters to, uh, to buy American goods, uh, as uh, politicians often do. Uh, his campaign took, went a bit of a cropper when uh, his opponents revealed that the top hat he was wearing was actually made in Britain. It fell apart, didn't it? God, by contrast, is always consistent. He doesn't say things and then do something completely different. His actions match his words, as we see here. He's promised that if uh, the people prove unfaithful, so he must act. Uh, though Solomon does remain on the throne for the time being, uh, initially we see that two rivals emerge with the wonderful names of Hadad and Rezon. Uh, Hadad was an uh, Edomite prince. He'd fled to Egypt after um, uh, David's conquest of uh, Edom. Uh, Rezon, on the other hand, was a, a rebel leader. He'd uh, taken control of Damascus, which is sort of to the north of uh, Israel in, uh, in Syria. Uh, both of them had grown up with this hatred of Israel. And uh, together they were a bit of a threat to the nation as, uh, as Solomon's reign began to decline. And behind these developments, the writer is really clear that the hand of God is at work. 
Uh, did you notice uh, here, if you're reading on, uh, verses 14 and verse 23? Uh, for both of these figures, for both Hadad and Razon, it is clear that it is God who has raised them up. Verse 14, uh, we are told, Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomites, from the royal line of Edom. Uh, verse 23, And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Razon the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master. Uh, at all times, it is God himself who is directing the paths of history to fulfill and to accomplish his purposes in his timing. Uh, both these men had been um, uh, Solomon's opponents before in battle, but he'd easily defeated them. Hadn't been a problem. They'd been a walkover. And yet now, as God's appointed judgment comes upon Solomon, uh, surprisingly enough, they achieve success. <laughs> It's God who is behind it. And yet even then, God's hand is on them and is restraining them. Uh, They don't have the success that they might have. Solomon is still on the throne. Uh, God refuses to let them destroy Solomon. Can you see this? It's wonderful, isn't it, how God is at work in history, raising up these people who by right should never have defeated Israel, should never have defeated Solomon. And yet God at the same time holds them back in order that his plans and his purposes might be fulfilled in his timing. At every point, history is being shaped and directed by God. It's not bunk. It is the carefully controlled acts of God working in his timing and to his plan. Uh, The whole doctrine of God's sovereignty is something that is uh, very, very controversial. It's been controversial throughout church history, and it continues to be so. We can't go into it now in any great depth. You'll be glad to know, I'm sure. Uh, Except to say that we must be careful not to, uh, in the words of the articles, make one part of scripture repugnant to another. That is, we shouldn't sort of uh, uh, so overemphasize God's sovereignty that we we play down uh, human responsibility. And yet, nevertheless, I think it's very clear that the Bible does teach us that God reigns supreme in all things. Uh, He does as he pleases. He does only as he pleases. And he does always as he pleases. Nothing can happen outside of his control. No plan that God has ever uh, laid down will ever be thwarted. Uh, Politicians are elected at his decrees. Uh, Our paths are directed by his hand. And we can be sure that when God promises something, he will do it. Uh, when he promises consequences for ignoring his word, as he did to the Israelites, uh, in his sovereignty they will surely come to pass. Dare we try him? And dare we doubt when we look around and see evil flourish that God will never deal with it? God has set a day when he will deal with evil. There are consequences for disobeying his word. And one day it all will be revealed. We should trust him and obey. There is no other way, as the hymn says. For history is under God's direction. Finally, our third uh, section, which I've given the title, uh, The Hope That God Sustains, uh, from verse uh, 26 onwards. We've just been seeing, haven't we, how uh, in Solomon's latter years, uh, there was this uh, emergence of rivals. We've seen the two, uh, Hadad and uh, Razon, and a third one now appears from uh, verse 26. 
uh, this man Jeroboam, one of uh, Solomon's officials who had been placed in charge of the uh, build, rebuilding of the city walls. And we have this dramatic intervention uh, by God uh, himself from uh, verses, uh, whereabouts are we, verse 29 onwards. Uh, God himself intervenes by means of the prophet Ahijah uh, and a powerful visual aid. We often use visual illustrations, don't we, in church? And uh, so does uh, God's prophets too. Uh, he takes his new cloak, he rips it into 12 pieces, and he gives Jeroboam 10 pieces, one for each tribe of Israel that he will lead. The message is abundantly clear. The kingdom will pass from Solomon on account of his disobedience and idolatry, and it will pass to Jeroboam. doesn't look, does it, like the situation get much worse for Israel or Solomon. What about God's promise to David all those uh, years ago that we can read uh, back in uh, Samuel? That promise that David's throne would endure forever. What's happened to this? Solomon, uh, David's son, has gone completely off the rails. How can it endure uh, if he has done so? Has his sin rendered that promise worthless? Is there a way back for God's people? Well, wonderfully, as we've seen so often in Kings, even in the midst of despair, God holds out hope. Excuse me. Verse 34, I think, is that ray of hope amid the uh, cloud of judgment. Verse 34, God says, But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commandments and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and I'll give you ten tribes. I'll give one tribe to his sons that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. God has not forgotten what he said. Uh, Solomon will feel his judgment. Of course he will. But still, one tribe of Israel will remain in the hands of David's line, as will Jerusalem, the city of God's name. God has made promises, and he has remained faithful to his word and to his grace, even when his people prove unfaithful. Uh, We must, I think, be careful not to allow the seriousness of Solomon's sin to uh, be lost from view. Uh, It is serious. He has set up shrines to alternative gods. Uh, He's pursued an open-door policy. Uh, so that anyone who believes in anything, any false god, whatever you like, uh, can come in and worship. Uh, It's proved a spiritual cancer to the people of God. His sin as the king has led uh, God's people astray. His punishment is just. To have the kingdom taken away from him seems harsh, but it is perfectly just. And yet, as always, with God, with his justice comes mercy. Uh, God does not deal with Solomon and Israel as they deserve, but he shows his grace. Verse 39, uh, he says, I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. God shows his grace alongside his justice. I guess as so often uh, in the Old Testament, what is sketched out in pencil, as it were, is painted in colour in the New Testament. We can see, can't we, how against the darkness of human sin, human rebellion, human wickedness, the love and the mercy of God shine out in the cross. 
uh, in sending the Lord Jesus to die in our place, to die for our sin, for our rebellion, for our wickedness, and uh, our turning away from God. Uh, God has both demonstrated his justice. He's been true to his word. He's found a way to reconcile his justice and yet also to be merciful. He's dealt with sin and yet he has in turn made a way for us to be forgiven, to be reconciled to him when we trust in the work of Christ. God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. That was true for Solomon and the nation of Israel. It is true today. Praise God. Uh, one man in particular knew that to be wonderfully true for himself. In uh, Olney Churchyard in Yorkshire, there's a gravestone with this inscription. John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had once tried to destroy John Newton, the slave trader who became uh, a passionate uh, preacher and a hymn writer, famously wrote Amazing Grace, was a man who knew the character of God. He knew that in God there is always the hope of mercy that sustains. It may be that there are some this morning who are particularly conscious of having wandered away from God. Maybe you once knew him and you've drifted away. Maybe you feel like you've never known him. You've Uh, tried to know him, and yet something seems to be in the way. Uh, This is for all of us. God always holds out hope of grace and mercy. In the Lord Jesus Christ, he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Whatever we've done, the way that we've turned our back on him, he says, come, and he asks us to be reconciled to him. Uh, Do come to him. Come this morning. In the midst of darkness, there is always a hope that sustains, and only God can sustain Well, whether it's England's uh, World Cup campaigns or the careers of politicians, it's true, isn't it, that uh, they all seem to end in failure, as somebody once uh, put it. Sadly for Solomon and uh, for Israel, the bright start of his reign uh, fizzled out, closed with the darkness of idolatry, rebellion and judgment. Uh, And sadly, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, uh, neither Jeroboam, this uh, appointed successor to, uh, to Solomon, or any of the other kings who follow, actually managed to prove much more faithful uh, sadly, spoiler alert, it's going to get a lot, more, a lot worse before it gets a lot better. And yet, even amid the darkness of sin, God is working his purposes out. He's true to his character, he's true to his grace, uh, and he's still at work. And so, as we close, let's pledge ourselves to him again in obedience, that we have the heart that he desires, that we're trusting in the history that he's directing and looking for the hope that only he can sustain. Let's pray, shall we, as we uh, close. Lord, we do um, read this chapter, we look at Solomon, and we wonder how on earth a man, for things were going so well, a man who asked for wisdom, who asked for a discerning heart, could go so badly off the rails. And yet we recognise that our hearts are the same. They are wicked, they are deceitful. And we pray that we would be people who guard our hearts with your help. They are the wellspring of life. And we pray that uh, we would trust in your promises. Thank you so much for your grace. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. I thank you for your mercy. And we pray that we'd be people who live in the light of that uh, from this day and forevermore.